That was amazing. I, I that was yeah, was like a, that was a U-turn you just took. Was that was that yoga that you just did? Because you turned yourself into a pretzel. Is there a place for caruana? Sorry, I'm giving you the munchies, aren't I, Joda? You're feeding people a lot of hopium. All right, hey. Welcome, everybody. Uh, welcome to Sense and Signal. Um, I am uh, Joda Jensen, and I am your one of your hosts today. Um, and I am joined by my co-host. Dan Tarker, and I come from the field of education, uh, and that's the lens I'm bringing to this conversation. Yep. And uh, so today we're going to, uh, we have the opportunity and privilege of having um, Brad Topliff with us today. Uh, Brad Topliff is a director of innovation, um, and he's going to, and he's been around the Silicon Valley world for quite some time. And I think we're going to kind of dive into that a little bit. Um, but today we kind of want to kind of talk about the notions of uh, uh, finding meaning at your work and what empathy, uh, how empathy kind of plays a role in you discovering uh, the value and purpose of uh of your work environment. And also I think we're going to probably talk about work life balance. And I think Brad has a very specific sort of take on that and some thoughts around that. So, um, without further ado, Hey, Brad, welcome. Uh, thank you. Yep. Yep. Oh, Dan. And do we, are we, uh, this is where you put the audiences clapping. There's yes. Yeah. They're well, cheering. We, They're not going. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I, I mean, especially with the suit, there. right? Hey. I mean, I also <laughs> want to hear about your fashion designer. Like, do you have like somebody you consult or? <laughs> My, yes. <laughs> uh, I have a closet full of these suits. Um, I bring them. They, I don't know. For today, it's just Joda knows. And probably you do too, Dan. It's dark and gray and wet yes. and awful and windy outside. So, we're all trapped in the Pacific I, Northwest. That's right. When I was, uh, when I was, you know, in the green room trying to decide what exactly uh, <laughs> how I would dress, and I've seen a bunch of your your uh, podcasts, and and I just thought I'd go up level it into something bright and nice. sunny, and maybe up, you know, it helps change my mood. It helps. We appreciate um, it. We appreciate it. We and like, I, yeah, we like bright and sunny. So that everybody, yeah. Uh, yeah, so I understand what we're talking about here. Um, all three of oh, us yes. live in the in the uh, greater Northwest area. Uh, Brad actually lives not far from me in Portland area. And uh, uh, Mr. Tarker lives uh, about two and a half hours north of us in a Seattle, Washington. So, yeah. And I guess since I thought you were about to say a sea of communists. <laughs> since, <laughs> since this is also a non-video podcast. In addition to being on YouTube, I'm wearing a suit and tie uh, covered in pineapples. It's beautiful. <laughs> it's awesome. It is beautiful. It's very it's beautiful. vibrant blue. And at some point, I hope you get up, stand up, walk back, do a spin, come back so everybody can, when they on YouTube, get that special extra. Uh, if I visual. was wearing pants, I would do that. I never wear pants when we're podcasting. <laughs> yeah. What are you talking about? Why is that a thing? <laughs> so, uh, all right. If, are, have we wasted your, uh, your time yet, Brad? No, <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> My time is so, yours. So Brad, tell us about your journey. You're, 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 you have a very interesting job title that I find fascinating. It's about innovation and collaboration, right? A director of innovation and collaboration. What is that? And how do I get that job? <laughs> um, you just make up a title, just like uh, I think you were talking to Dan last, last podcast about you know, like the made up titles. Um, no, it was, uh, it, it was it made to, to indicate innovation as a program as opposed to necessarily technology innovation innovation is one of those words that uh there are as many definitions for as there are people that use it right and so you walk right. in and you just don't have uh common language around what it means so um the idea is to to develop a program around innovation to help anybody in a company not just the technology group to uh innovate better, right? People can always say, yeah, we're innovative. Look, you know, the thing we built right over there, but you can always innovate better. There's all, you know, that sort of kind of continuous improvement, but always there's an opportunity to improve. And then uh, I think Dan, you said it, uh, I added collaboration to that title 
um, recognizing that the organization um, had a lot of struggles, and I think a lot of organizations do around collaboration. It also is a is a term with many many meanings, and without that kind of collaborative atmosphere, that kind of culture, innovation is really really hard. Right. So and so, what the, is innovation to you? I mean, because I've struggled with this too. Like, how do you define what innovation is? Because I, I, I hear your point. People overuse the term all the time. We want to do something innovative, and I know right. when you're thinking, it's not necessarily innovative. Doesn't have to be something that's grandiose, right? No, so, what it, is and it and it also seems to uh, from previous conversations is kind of has a maybe sort of a four letter word aspect to it right today. Like it seems like something you're almost remiss to, to bring into the conversation. Why is that as well? You can't look at a, at a job description without seeing or a company description these days, especially in the tech world without seeing the word innovation in it somewhere. Right. So it's not a great, it's not a very good search term. It, it, it becomes so horizontal to become meaningless. Um, I mean, I've, I'm sure I've done, thousands of presentations that that actually have some sort of Webster's dictionary calls it right but it's 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 new and meaningful change to make something better that's that's how I think of innovation um, and okay. that can take on any number of forms um, even if the thing you're doing isn't innovative from a world perspective if you weren't doing it before then it's innovative to you and your team and whoever else you're working with so it could be very contextual too. For sure. Yeah. If you're doing, you know, innovation in some small corner of accounts payable is still innovation because they weren't doing something and you said, Hey, we have a problem to solve. Let's, you know, figure out what the problem is. Let's figure out why we want to solve it and then find the way given the tools that we have. Right. The, <laughs> the, the one kind of, inno- the kind of innovation I like the best is the Apollo 13 movie, right? Where oh. they, the, the the people are that's the second in, time that's come up on this podcast <laughs> is Apollo the, 13 <laughs> all the, Tom Hanks is in peril um, and his team uh, including Kevin Bacon wasn't he in there um, so they're they're in peril the air is gonna run out and some guy down in mission control walks into a conference room with a bunch of engineers with duller suits than this throws a bunch of stuff on the table and says, you got to make that thing fit in that thing using only this, yeah. right? And and then they go to work and figure out how to not only create the thing, right? It's I think it's sort of classic square peg into a round hole that has to be airtight, but they also have to develop the process through which they got it, right? They know that the value creation is to those people who want to breathe um, they need to make it a process that works for those people in a no gravity situation with things that break and they're, you know, stressed out and all of those things, right? There's all of that contextual uh, process that they have to do to, to make something that works. Yeah, under extreme conditions in that case, but not all not all innovation has to take place in a life or no, death situation, one, right? It's a Tom Hanks movie, so it's one in which we can all relate. Exactly. So there's a is there a is a natural constraints aspect to to innovation? Uh, is there is that is that sort of one of the definitions that innovation has a um, uh, a canvas by which it is sort of uh, identified as them being innovation? I would, I would, I mean, like, like anything else, it depends, right? It's, yeah. if you're going to talk about innovation in the world of AI and you're sort of like, in theory, it can do anything. Let's talk about anything. Right. But if you're going to say, what can it do today versus what can it do in 10 years, then it's a different answer. Right. You say, well, we want to improve the lives of some, you know, business users today. You're not going to go give them an AI tool that does something. You're going to give them Google Forms or whatever the tools they have at their at their fingertips. They don't have to go to IT and buy that. You know that they're like I, I think they say the best kind of creativity because innovation is creativity uh, is with constraints, right? That's when oh yeah, that's when you can really shine. That's when it's meaningful. That's yeah. when it's funnest for me. Um, I, when I, people, t- that, th- those are the funnest challenges. I mean, I, I agree with everything you just said, but just from a perf- 
personal professional perspective. I that's when I and really enjoy when someone says exactly that scene from Apollo 13 was says you got to do all this with just this stuff. Go crazy. <laughs> well, I, I think love it's those the, challenges. I think it's true in the arts too, right? Like if you're in a creative endeavor like creating a play or a short story or artistic thing, you're you're limited by the tools that you have and sometimes you know you set up barriers for yourself like i'm going to write a story with a that features a branch a dog and a uh mongoose right, right. i gotta fit those three right, elements right, right. of the story right or in, like in a, right and it's in a time period of you know early 20th century kansas right they don't necessarily they're not gonna have cell phones and smartphones and all the things to solve the problem they're gonna they have to deal yeah, I think that's so why you set up more the constraints. Pieces. Yep. So, I mean, that's sort of the innovation and, and collaboration idea of a program around that, right? Like, how can we, in a particular company, make those things better? And sometimes it's both, sometimes it's one. It depends on, you know, the problem at hand. So, um, I would go, I this was from the office of the COO, uh, and I would look across the company and I could find problems to solve, especially ones around collaboration. You go, Hey, this department's doing this. Did you know that products got a thing over there that you need? And no, we didn't know that. And, you know, it's, it's not many people in larger organizations think about what's going on in other parts of the organization. They focus more Mm -hmm. on. They're all siloed. Yep. I'm wondering before, uh, before we jump into when we're going to do a little deep dive on this stuff, but um, how did wh- why 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 are you where you're at? Why I mean, why did you become? Why are you an innovation director? Why is innovation both a four letter word for you, but something that also that you want to rehabilitate into something meaningful? Um, <laughs> what is it? Wh- how did you get here? Why why is this something that's interesting to you? Well, um, it was it was later in my career that I realized that's what I've been doing all along um, since I started. I mean, in a lot of ways, my career started in high school. Uh, we were talking earlier. I went to high school where Wozniak and Jobs went to high school, though probably, I don't know what it was, 15 years later. Um, mm. And so, but Apple was growing up. It was the Silicon Valley. We had computers. And I, I was um, the production manager for our previously and and also when i was there award-winning school newspaper so like nationally known in those circles right it was competitive to get in but we had computers so ours was the very first year that we used computers to print out in page maker one an entire page of a newspaper where before they would strip print and you know, glue it all down. And if you wanted to make edits, you sort of cut out little words, but we did something completely different there. And I, you know, of course it's desktop publishing it didn't exist at the time. And I didn't think about that. I just thought, Oh yeah, we're using this thing to do the thing that we want to. It's fun. Right. It was exciting. I do want to make a note that first off people who are probably under 30 probably don't know what page maker is and people <laughs> under 20 probably don't know what a newspaper is. So we're <laughs> That's fair. Um, true. yes, these are, these are original Adobe products. They still exist today, right? We were using something called illustrator 88 where today you have Adobe illustrator. And I think that even young people today can, can understand that particular. Oh, they know their creative suite, their creative cloud. Yeah, it all still exists. It's just these were the these were the the beginnings, and really they're not that much different than they were then, just you know more powerful. So that led me to uh, you know I went through college using those skills, traveled around the world for five years using computer skills to to I could always get a job somewhere using a Mac. And then I, at some point I would come home and I would work at Apple again. And I'd work at Apple in, as a temp in, first it was the career center, but then it was in something called new media where they were trying to figure out how these new things that were appearing uh, would benefit Apple. And it was, it was, you know, you could, if I talked to somebody in IT and got hooked up to this network where there were all these words and images and chat rooms and stuff, right? And never seen such a thing. And, you know, there were no, there weren't really any graphics and you kind of go through and like, what is this? Genealogy was big. Uh, the IRC chat rooms, those were big. And, 
and then as I continued that sort of path of travel, eventually I came home back to the back to the Bay Area, and all the billboards had URLs on them. And I was like, hey, what happened? I thought that was my thing, <laughs> right? And and the world is suddenly became gotten, popular. <laughs> they got the they suddenly they the internet was there, and uh, and that was. You know that was amazing, and it opened up doors because I'd already sort of knew stuff. So right. again, I would get jobs along in other media agencies, fit, helping companies like Apple or Pioneer or these big companies. Disney I had no idea how to use gifts, uh, how to use any of these things to to sort of meet their goals. Right. So eventually that I was always in between art because I was I would could call myself a graphic designer when I was using the computer I'd be a graphic designer but then art students sort of figured out how to use computers and I knew I had to move on from that because I was not all that good an artist I could replicate a lot of stuff but I could also talk to the engineers um, as I had to use those computers to also learn how to do pretty light programming I just didn't head in that direction but I was sort of in between departments all the time and and user experience is sort of a natural place that I landed helping build a company from no user experience at all where engineers just built feature lists full of stuff to one which is where Joda and I met that actually valued the user which itself user experience itself was a product that we had to bring to the engineers and sell them because they had their way of doing things and everything outside of that was slowing them down we said he mm. looks that way, but not not really, because it will you know you're going to make all these mistakes, or you're going to do these things, or you're going to you know the launch dates and all that. Built a couple products uh, at at um, in that company, which were awesome. They were for business users, uh, but in the end, when we launched them after years of building, either the salespeople wouldn't sell them. Or the marketing people wouldn't put any money to them. So we're just like, well, why did we do that for five years? And that's where innovation came in. Why are we making these decisions? Where do our ideas come from? How are they processed? Because, and the answer was basically at the executive suite, right? If the if the CTO of the company heard of an idea he kind of liked, he'd go, hey, why don't you go do that? And then, you know, but he didn't, wasn't checking in with marketing to say, hey, we're going to do this. And when we're done doing it, we're going to sell it. And the things that I built while they were, and Joda did too, they were great, amazing products that are even better than ones that exist today, but they were outside of the business model of the company. And nobody at right. the company really understood the whole business model. We just didn't talk about it. So that's why I got yeah, I, I, just a long answer to how I got involved in innovation. Yeah. A couple of things about that. One, I'll, I'll agree. I think there's a lot of people and organizations who really don't have a full comprehension of what the overall organization does. I think that's even true in higher education. You think we all would have consensus about what we're doing, but I, I would say that that's true even in organizations like higher ed. But what fascinates me about what you just shared, going back to our previous episode with Dan Torres, is your positionality within that workplace environment. And it sounds like you are kind of at an intersection between engineering and marketing and art and uh, probably just executive offices as well. Yes. And that positionality gives you kind of a perch where you can see a lot of different things going on and be able to make those connections that other people aren't able to make, which helps facilitate innovation. It does. And, that, and in that organization, user experience was part of product. So therefore attached to engineering and of course, product managing and building from idea to, to launch these products, you got to know the engineers and it's an engineering led organization. So you're either making a product or you're selling a product and everybody else is kind of just supporting things. But the, uh, I was told at you know, when I said, hey, why are we doing this this way? We could do it better and let's start an innovation program. They said, oh, well, the CEO would never allow someone to have innovation in their title because you just hire smart people and they'll innovate. And they left it at that, right? So then when the leadership of the company changed, we were, I was able to pitch a, an actual program to promote process and 
the ideals around innovation and facilitation and workshopping. And, and we had, you know, a natural group of people that were good at helping that in the user experience group, because that's the people who are trained to ask questions instead of mm. assert answers. Interesting. And so how do you go, you, it sounds like you go to, diff, to, to different parts of your company, identify problems and then coach them on how to innovate. What does that look like? Like, how do you identify the problem? And then what things do you say to people to help stimulate that innovation, innovative process? Well, it was, it's a long time in the company when you're around for a long time. I think, um, I think that, uh, I think Bill Murray said it in Groundhog Day. He's like, maybe God's just been around for so long. He knows everything. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. so after a while, you know, all the people you hear, you know, and if, and if, and you've if, heard it over and over and over yeah, again, and every generation, people trust, people trust you to talk and say, Hey, yeah, this is really frustrating. They might not come to you and expect help because in some organizations, no one expects help. They just try to get done on their, with whatever's on their desk. And if you approach them and say, Hey, I, I saw what you were doing or I heard something in that meeting. Can you explain what you're doing, what you're trying to do? And then you identify roadblocks and you know the look on people's faces when you are actually there and trying to help them and not sort of undermining with your own agenda just because you're trying to make the company better. Then that has a roll on effect where more people will say, hey, I have you know this problem. Or it comes from an executive land where they go, hey, this is kind of a problem. Can you work on it for a while? until right. either the parties involved resist so much that it's not worth continuing or, you know, you find a path and makes it, make it better. Yeah. Cause I'm, I can imagine you going into someone and saying something like that, that you might initially get some resistance or some defensiveness and you have to build some trust to yes. be able to open that dialogue. Yeah, for sure. And, and, you know, depending on which direction decisions are made, you don't always get that trust. You, you know, the, even executives are looking over the fence at the other person, battling for budget, battling for the attention of the executive above them, you know, what, for the board, whatever it is. There's so much politics involved that people don't want to open up and, and ask for or accept help often. And that's, that's, a, that's a culture it, problem. It, you yeah. know, it's inter- what, what I'm hearing, too, is there's this confluence, and, and maybe you was sort of stated at the beginning, but there is – from your description, there is this confluence of innovation and, and dialogue, communication internally, the ability to have open commu- uh, conversations with people and the right conversations at the right time. And, you know, it's almost as much as you are an innovation director, you're almost a dialogue director, uh, um, a conduit. Um, and there's a, and there's yeah facilitator a and there's a conflation in there which is I find interesting because I almost hearing you talk the innovation isn't necessarily in the in what gets produced but in how it was produced does yeah. that resonate it, with you at all yes innovate I mean for me innovation is a process and you know and as people will, will you know you often hear you got to fail fast that's if the process allows you to fail fast right it's it's you design that process to experiment if you can, like whatever the thing is um, with those pieces that are on the table. Interesting. Yeah. So how does, how does agile fit into that, into your innovation, your innovating process? Um, Well, agile changed the game a little bit from sort of the waterfall of, of how products went with the product manager at the top and it made it more of a, Oh, I'm a product owner. I'm absorbing the things that go, go in. We're taking it in smaller chunks. So user, you know, so people feel more comfortable um, adding their two cents into the process rather than just having these giant monoliths that come in serial so that no one really wants to break into the monolith. It just, when something's too hard in an organization, people just stop, doing it. They're like something's easier up there. I don't have to, I don't have to beat my head against this wall. And if that black box you're talking about is so confusing or, you know, just inputs come in, outputs come out. And, and that's all I really know because engineers controlled it. Agile sort of broke those black boxes open and said, let's break this into a bunch of manageable chunks in terms of time and effort, but also understanding. 
right? Someone can easily go, I don't understand that chunk. Interesting. So when I, Brad, when I asked you to, to do this, do this conversation with us, you sort of said, yeah, we can talk about innovation, but there's something else I'm more interested in. So, so, and Dan and I said, screw that. We're going to talk about innovation. It sounds like. Which is fine. <laughs> like, we can talk about innovation. I can talk about innovation. Great thumbnail. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, but before we move on to the next episode, I, there was something I thought would be kind of interesting. You mentioned Kool-Aid. You drunk the Kool-Aid. What does Silicon I Valley Kool-Aid taste like and what are we talking about <laughs> uh i i suppose it it tastes like um i heard this just the other day on a podcast it tastes like hopium <laughs> hopium love it, it so that, was a, that was a politics thing but you give you know like oh i do think that you know technology can change things and i do think that i can impact those those technologies and that is the the hope of change in the hope of people having other people's best interests at heart. Like I, I, that's yeah. where an optimist can really trip up because not everybody has those, those, um, drives to raise everybody up. There's still all the politics, which then makes you, you know, curl up in a ball and go home. And, and but, like, I mean, al- like alcohol there, you can drink too much and find yourself drunk in a gutter. Or in a jail, (laughs) Um, you drink just enough. Your friends love you, and you have a good time. Uh, Maybe even some cool things occur. You play pool better. Play pool after the first year. The first year, I'm way better. You know. So is hopium similar? I mean, does hopium? Can is there a good and the bad side to hopium? Yeah, I mean, I've stayed with startups way longer than I should have because they're always just looked like one more. If we only just got that, that that funding or that person's going to buy this thing or whatever the thing is, there's always one more thing that feels like I'm going to participate in something big. And then when it finally falls apart and, you know, in a way that, that isn't fun for anybody, then yeah, that's where you got addicted to the maybe part and, uh, and didn't really think about the, you know what, it's okay to leave things behind when they're not working for you as opposed to just working. This segment of the Sense and Signal podcast is brought to you by Awkward Pauses. Awkward Pauses, terrorizing podcasters since 2004. Order yours today and get three terrible cringe moments for free. Taxes not included. So, hopium. It's an interesting (laughs) concept, right? (laughs) So... We will edit that to a shorter, <laughs> a shorter pause. Yeah, I think that it, I think it, we're in the you know we're in election season, and I think that that's the you know it, it's certainly around polling was where that came up because people read the polls in the way that they want to read them because they want their team to win. Yeah, yeah, and you, yeah, and you've invested so much time and effort and your hope into an organization, whether it's a startup or any type of career that you might be in and you might be reticent to walk away because you're giving up a lot, a lot of, a lot of emotion and time and energy and intellect that you've invested into this thing. Especially early stage stuff, especially when it feels like, you know, any number of things that I was involved in startups, all of the, you know, startups that didn't get anywhere were cutting edge technology that 10 years later, you know, is identity management owned by the people, more of democratization of identity. We had this great namespace and all of this stuff, but, um, but ultimately people didn't care and now they do. So now people want to own their, their identities. And we said, you know, like we told you. But, you know, now it's too late. <laughs> right. Yeah, because you, you can't, I mean, you never know how the market's going to react to the product that you're you're developing. But I think in the long haul, though, if you think about innovation, technology and innovation, right? And let's take a step back, a step up, right? More of a helicopter view of it rather than inside the organization as an employee. But if you look up at the changes in technology since the 1990s, you know, with the rise of the internet and Apple and and Microsoft and so forth, it has fueled innovation. We can't really deny that, like on a societal level. I mean, it's been dramatically transformative in, in, in negative ways in terms yes. of we no longer have our own identities. We're all data mines for companies. That's a negative aspect. But we also 
are on the verge of having self-driving cars. We're we're salt. We're coding the g- human genome. We're you know making some real advances as well. Sure, of course, but um, I mean, there's innovation for just innovation's sake, right? There's the all of the things that have sort of fallen by the wayside to get there, and then there's sort of the ethics around when you're making something new, like Facebook, and all the people that go, "No, that's going to be terrible, t- terrible for the world." You're like, "No, it's fun. I get to you know connect with all my friends." And then you know, fast forward a couple of years, and you're like, "Wow, we really could have used some policies or something at the beginning of that, yeah, to keep it from turning into a complete monstrosity." You know, it, it, you know, and you can't know, but there's no, I mean, I don't think there's a time when you can say there wasn't technology and innovation that didn't make something better, but it also comes in, you know, the, the waves, right? You're like, look at the new VR headset, you know, like nobody cares, nobody cares or AI, AI has been around since, you know, since there were computers really, you know, like it gained in popularity and then, you know, sort of fell off. That's interesting, right? Because you think it's going to be a breakthrough thing and it doesn't happen. But it will eventually be that breakthrough thing. And when you look back far enough, you're like, oh, my God, look at that. All those people who said this was going to break through thing, you know, in 1968 were right. Right. Sometimes. (laughs) You know, know, just 30 years off. Living in Silicon Valley is almost like living in a casino. Um, you're at, you know, in the sense that you're at these, you're all at a table and you hear everybody winning next to you. You hear someone screaming over there and someone, I won, I won. And Silicon Valley is full of, you know, the, 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 the startup down the street got $37 million of funding. And it just, it really is when I think about it, has that sensation and it belies the truth on some level. Right. And, it, and, and that, that, and it can kind of lend to abuses, on to some degree of people's time and energy, their spirits. I think sure. that uh, like a casino, one can go in and win that first time maybe. And now they continue to go back to find that high again. And I think Silicon Valley is kind of like that. You know, it's, you get so close or, you know, people who are there or literally down the street, uh, one of the companies becomes a, a unicorn and it's just, it's just, it's so tantalizing and, and leaders in these companies can kind of take advantage of that and make people work, to degrees that probably might again be unethical, right? And I, sure. and I know this is kind of something that you've been thinking about around, like what 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 makes people brilliant segue. That was amazing. What do they want? That was, right? that was awesome. Yeah. Segue. Yeah. 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 Okay, like thank a, you. Thank that you. was a U-turn you just took. You. I know. And I think that <laughs> what you're talking about. There's an audience is, here. Is like, are you? Is he? Is, was that was that yoga that you just did? Because you turned yourself into a pretzel to get around <laughs> to. I was, that, well, I was that, not listening to a damn thing you guys were saying for about two minutes and kind of composing okay. that. So. How can we do <laughs> so what? So what you're describing to describe that's the, podcast. That, that's how we that, podcast. <laughs> that segue is that a company. So for me, from the perspective I have, uh, everything's a product. Everything, right? Like I can't look at something and not think of it as a product. Everything has value to somebody. Whatever you're creating, right? It's a policy. It's a sure a product, a process, and people, right? A, a person is a product to a company and a company is a product and a team to that person. So every it offers them a value that they want to receive and how, whether they stay with that company or not, or jump to the next one, then, or, you know, if they have that opportunity or just stick around, you know, being sad and miserable until the whole thing falls apart, um, you know, that affects their efficiency, I don't even want to say efficiency, just happiness. And then, which then affects the culture, right? Like the, the culture of an Uber versus, you know, something that maybe almost anything was less toxic male, whatever, which they believed would be their, their savior. Right. And, and they made a lot of money being that, but there's a lot of people that suffered for it. Yeah. And, and so yeah. what do these leaders in these organizations look like that create this this culture that you're talking about? I mean, so, the, you yeah, know, this, yeah, this culture, because yeah, yeah. I've seen I've, this right. toxic culture, Silicon Valley toxic culture, right? Where you're, you're, you're feeding off of people's, you're feeding people a lot of hopium so that they'll stick with <laughs> your company and make personal sacrifices on a venture that is probably doomed to fail, but they'll still keep advancing investing their time and energy into it and their hopes and dreams. 
And, and don't forget the snacks. They feed you a lot of snacks and free. Feeding you a lot of snacks so you stay there till 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night and get are back in the office at 4 a.m. in the morning. Well, I, I, and I think that answer has changed over the last couple of years since the pandemic. And people have a little bit more opportunity to sort of move around and they ask questions. I mean, to answer your question briefly, I mean, um, they just a lot of those kind of leaders just don't care. Right. They, they, they can say they care. They can say they love their people, but it's in the actions of how they compensate them, how they're, you know, whether they're going to, you know, like layoffs happen. That, that has to happen. But, it, you know, it, it can be done in a nice way so that you don't feel like you're on the chopping block next and you're just another uh, interchangeable cog in the giant wheel. Right. So but, don't do it like Elon Musk. Right. <laughs> well, they saw that. They saw that coming. Right. No, no one, could, no one can deny that the Twitter people didn't see that coming, but they also wanted to get whatever severance package was, was due them. And so they can live in misery for a little while. Right. People like what people talk about today is what do people want out of work? They want a hybrid. They, you know, like we should send them back to the office. They want remote. They want, there's so many different things that they want that, um, that you can have again, a million different conversations about, they want impact in their work. They want meaning. They want compensation. They want work-life balance. They want all, there's all, any individual is going to have any number of things that are important to them and change over time. And, and I call that, (laughs) um, I call that work equilibrium. What people uh, like equilibrium, but with work, you can, it's 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 easy to understand when you think about uh, an individual person. You guys have had jobs, like anybody in a company, from an executive down to down to the people on the front line, or you know, facilities people, or in in accounts payable. Or I'm picking on accounts payable for some reason today. Um, they deserve it. They're but, always late. You know, at the base, <laughs> what, every, what people want out of work, the very base minimum viable product of the job is for things to be okay, right? Like I want to go into work every day and not be stressed out that I'm about to lose my job, that yeah. uh, that my boss is a jerk, that, that you know, the project is failing, that, that I don't get paid enough. You know, like I don't want to go in there and think about that. So I find this sort of equilibrium state. Everybody wants to love their job. But at a minimum, they don't want to go every day going, I, I'm going to go find something else. At that point, they're falling beneath this, this neutral buoyancy of, of work equilibrium and companies, teams, wherever, you know, people every day, they can either add weight to those, to those employees, meaning they're dragging them down below the line, or they're floating them in very small ways. So um, like work-life balance, for example, is a really big thing and you can have lots of policies and programs in place, but you still, people still burn out. It's all an individual thing. You can't make everybody happy, but you can care that they are or aren't. And you can train managers to care, right? You, w- without that piece, everyone's just kind of like, Oh, I better go, you know, I better be hitting LinkedIn and finding something new because this thing drives me crazy on a daily basis. Everyone's going to hate their job or dislike their job from one, you know, on a day or a week or whatever, but hopefully they go, Oh my God, I forgot how much I love my team. I forgot how much, you know, these, you know, we're, we, we finally launched something we've impact We're doing something. So they, you know, they, they rise back up and go like, my job's actually pretty good. Yeah. You know, I'm wondering, so <laughs> to mix metaphors, um, so we, you, you've, the owner or the the managers or leaders of these companies there they they dole out all these six packs of work equilibrium and and that can definitely uh throw you off your or excuse me hopium hopium no is it hope yeah that's hopium right. and then that can throw off your work equilibrium um and, and 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 or at least obfuscate the fact that you're you're probably working in ways that are not conducive to long term good health whether it's physical or mental Right, making you mean like making giving the promise the that unicorn promise where they go, we have a startup and we're going to change the world and all y'all are going to be billionaires, right? And people <laughs> go like, ooh, I really like that. I'm way up here, right? You could you could make me work ninety hour weeks, That's right? Yeah, uh, you can do all sorts of things. My boss could be a jerk, but I'm like, wow, look at that. I can see. Well, I can't quite see it, but that guy just described a golden ring that I can almost see as a possibility. Right. And they go, great. 
but man, you're going to crash hard when, you know, they have a layoff and you're like, Oh, not everybody gets that gold ring. And oh. most will crash. Right. I mean, most find yeah. the crash and, and, and it's funny when you say like my boss is a jerk, all you got to do is point to Steve jobs and go, well, Steve jobs was a jerk. And all those people, that was a great company. I guess it's okay to have a jerk boss. Right. You can start to right. apologize. And, and I'm wondering, Instead of maybe just don't, and I think there's a value in hope in hopium, right? We think we discussed this. There's there's a there's a dark side and a light side to to hopium, and hopium is it, what is that balance, right? And I, I and I and I throw that question out there, and then I also throw that question: is is there a place for caruana? As opposed to hope, <laughs> I mean, marijuana. <laughs> I like that. Is there, I like that. Oh, wow. Okay. Is that a mixed metaphor, or is that just a gateway drug to opium? But should I mean, is that a is that a new is that a currency? I feel like millennials might be expecting that currency actually more and more. I feel when I work with millennials and Z that that marijuana is something that you don't care about me, then I'm not going to care about this project project anymore. Then right, right. I'm gonna you know you're not going to pay me as much as I think other people are getting around me, then I'm, you know, you're going to pay me at 80%. You're going to get probably 70% yeah. out of me because, you know, it's hard. You're going to look at me funny because I like to take uh, two weeks off four times a year. I'm out. You know, I, I, right. I, I like, I, I have a strong sense of work, worker librium. You know, I think that, and I think that does lean more towards, towards right. younger and younger people, which I, I root for personally. Yeah. So, I remember, I can remember someone talking to me about getting a job at, I think it was probably Palm back in the, you know, P, PDA days. And, you know, this was somebody, I went, it was a sister of somebody I went to high school with, and she's asking me questions. And I said, yeah, I think that stock options are fine, but don't let them talk you out of livable salary because of these stock options, because those can disappear just as easily as anything else. Like stock options used to be the hopium for the Silicon Valley masses, yeah. right? They were, they were like, Oh, they gave me 25,000 somethings. Right. And, and I've had people in a startup that were like, Hey, what are you, what are you doing? We're working on this project. And this is one of the leaders. And he goes, he's just sitting there with a spreadsheet calculating that if the company sold for so much, how much he would have at the end. And I was like, dude, you're going to drive yourself nuts doing that. Like that's a, that's, that's gravy right now. Do the job. And if, cause if everybody is just focused on that thing, then you're not going to succeed at all. Right. So then that, part becomes something you want to have for sure, right? The Amazon people, the Google people are talking about RSUs all the time and total compensation. And it just keeps like ratcheting up and you see these, you know, they're making lots of money and they, you know, and they're like, I'm getting burned out, but damn, I'm making $700,000 a year. And, and everybody else, those are often engineers, right? And everybody else is just like, I just want to, I just want to live, man. I want to, I want to yeah, see yeah, my yeah. Especially kid. if you live I in wanna... Silicon Valley, right? Where it's uber expensive. I mean, Washington, Seattle's the same, right? It's, oh yeah, 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 yeah. For like, sure. I just want to, I want everything to be cool. I would like to get compensated one fairly for the work I'm actually putting in. And I would like to have a piece of the success of the whole company so that I have something that to believe in. Right. So I'm going to throw in in this whole hopium caruana conversation uh -oh. since we're uh -oh. all getting high on this uh, <laughs> a different aspect to it, and because I, I come from higher ed and nonprofit sector, and it, those things, interestingly, I think exist there too, but in a different way, right? Because I think you know, I think when you're attracted to Silicon Valley, there's a monetary reward you're looking for as well as a prestige and changing the world through technology. And I sure. think in the education and the nonprofit, it attracts a different type of person, potentially. One that maybe is more focused on caring, getting to that caruana and how that could be a manipulative drug too, right? And like we'll often hear like from leaders like, well, you're here for the students, and the response from faculty or staff and stuff like that is like, well, I can't pay my rent. I'm living in my car. I have to go to the food bank to eat. But right. the response from some people in leadership, I think people who are wise don't do this, is like, well, but we're, we need to put the students first. And it's like, no, we have to put people being able to live first. Because if you don't take right. care of yourself, getting back to care, if you don't take care of, of yourself first, you're not going to have anything to 
give to anybody else as far as energy or thought or work effort or anything. Right. And people are starting to, uh, they're starting to realize, or at least they, they were, because now the economy's shifted and it, you know, like the balance of power shifts that it used to be work at the center. And then you sort of go out in these rings and it's, and you're out there somewhere, your life. But now people started to think about, wait, no, I'm at the center and my job is supposed to surround me, not I'm just going to work to, to, you know, work really hard just to have a life. I want my life became integrated. They used to, you know, they, like, I never liked work-life balance because it's, you're trying to measure two things that are not the same. So how many, how many work units versus how many life units, where is the balance? It doesn't make any sense. And then people started talking about how it's integrated. It's more like a yin and yang because work and life are kind of integrated, but still the yin and yang have lines on them, right? In the pandemic, everything got all shaken up into very blurry work-life smoothie and no one figured out where one starts and the other begins. And then you're like, oh, well, there's parts of that were really, were, that were really good. Sorry, I'm giving you the munchies, aren't I, Joda? Yeah. <laughs> you spoke too much on Carolina. So much Carolina. <laughs> um, uh, that, they, that they recognize that what they, um, that, that they like the part where their you know, kid comes running through after school, mm-hmm. even though, hey, I got to do a Zoom meeting and that people didn't care that much. They're like, well, yeah, the dogs were running like, around. The people brought the dogs. The dog's in. going crazy for the mailman. Yeah. It's fine. Your boss isn't going to go. That was very unprofessional. To you. <laughs> you know, Joda, you know, like yeah. we need to have a talk. Obviously, if you have something really important to do, but everybody from clients down got off their pedestal in the pandemic and went, I want to have that balance too. Like, I don't want to yell at people. It doesn't feel, it doesn't feel good to a jerk necessarily to yell at people. It's just a different part of his brain he's feeding. You know, with that said, I, um, I have been asked to wear shirts more often to meetings. And so I think they, <laughs> there is a boundary there somewhere. Uh, right. Um, yes. I had to ask him to wear a shirt on this podcast. I, I, I really don't want to wear shirts at all. And that's, that's, that's whatever. Um, you have a tuxedo shirt. Make everything formal. You know, when I first, when I first joined, when I first got into, uh, moved to San Francisco and got my first job in the tech, tech world, I love the integration of my life with the tech world. All my friends came from the tech world and I loved being with them. I loved going to bed and thinking about technology. I loved waking up and thinking about technology. It was, it I, I didn't want a separation of, mm-hmm. uh, of, of that, you know? And then as I got older, um, that changed, right? And it partially due to the fact maybe I never joined one of those companies that became a unicorn and became a became a multimillionaire. I don't know. I don't know. But but at some point in time, I was like, okay, all this grind, all this thinking, which is awesome, isn't necessarily uh, fulfilling another part of my life that's starting to feel more important to me. Um, and so I think there's an age quotient or an ex- that that's part of this this conversation, right? Well, I think or, you recognize. Different, your values change, and the importance of the work that you're doing changes, and your your assessment of your importance to that workspace also changes. I was in a meeting today where someone was referring to somebody else in a different organization, like oh, who had just retired about a year ago, and they're like, oh, whenever I had a problem, I'd I'd contact Barbara. What was her last name again? <laughs> Right. And like a year ago, she probably knew that person's last name off the top of her, off the tip of her tongue and would email her and ask her these questions. And now a year later, she's gone. Barbara's like half a name now. And like we, you know, how much we wrap our identities up with our jobs is kind of an, you know, a manipulation too. Because once we're gone, somebody's going to come in and replace us. If the, if the if the organization still exists, right? Someone will come in and replace us. And you, a couple of years from now, most people at the organization won't remember who you were, or what you did. That's a, that, well, that's definitely a function of age. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you get wiser yeah, about that. Part, you know, and the other part is introspection, right? Some people are are good at that, right? It was, and it, and so it's it's that that's where. You know, people would have been at jobs for a long time. People got laid off. People quit. People got fired suddenly. And, you know, and they would come and you're like, you know, it's, it's an emotional moment for sure. 
but it's also one you're going to miss working with that person. It was nice having them around. We're like, people come and go. It's work. It's not like, it is not like life when you're like yes. somebody died or moved away, you know, you know, or yeah. some, or broke up with you yeah. or whatever the thing is. And we, we conflate the, the, the work and life. Cause there's certainly similarities, but your team isn't your family. Um, they can act like your family and you can become very good friends with your smaller team, but you know, your company, it depends on whether they, 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 they care about everybody, but they're, you know, can they care just for an individual? That's really harder. So, which is where culture and values come into play because you set those in a way. And if you live by them, then people feel, um, there's sort of rules to live by, right? There's like this Caruana, I suppose, can be your value. And you're like, just, you know, be, there's some companies that I want to work for. Show, lead with the values that care for human beings and not just let's change the world and try to sell a widget to a million people that they're not going to care about. Yeah, and that was one of the things you wanted to talk about. And maybe we've already talked about it, but maybe we can bring up to sort of put a finer point on it. You make a statement that empathy is the secret sauce. And, And when you say that, are you talking... What do you what do you mean by that? When you say, are you referring to the organizations? Are you referring to the world? Myself? What like what is what are you talking I mean, about? Yes, I've done enough therapy to recognize that empathy is probably the secret sauce in everything, whether, <laughs> you know. But it and it and it changes in its own definition. The more I learn about how you define empathy, Brene Brown really picked up the empathy uh, gauntlet. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Pick up a gauntlet. Anyway, she picked it up and, and, you know, describing what empathy is versus sympathy. Yeah. And yeah, I remember saying that's that. great. Uh, years ago in nine, it was a 94 Goldman had his, uh, emotional, like his EQ, your, your EQ, EQ, yeah. of your IQ, right. Nobody talks about that very much anymore, but it's no less important to recognize that whether you're talking about innovation, this is where I draw it all together. Innovation uh, product management, right? The user experience people have to have empathy with the user, be able to put yourself, empathy is putting yourself in somebody else's shoes, being able to put yourself in somebody else's shoes. It, it, it fits in almost every part of a company, you know, HR needs to have empathy for people in order to treat them nicely when they are forced to reduce, you know, have a reduction of force. Um, the thing with empathy though, is that, and Dan, you were sort of talking about this with the culture and the leaders. Not everybody's good at, not everybody has yes. the same level of EQ and empathy. And there are different types. I think there's, they say three or four different types of empathy. Um, and there's also the main, dark empathy, right? Ooh, maybe. Is that Schadenfreude? <laughs> I think dark empathy is like where the, the leader is able to put themselves into your shoes, but they don't have the sympathy component of it. They don't really connect with what, how you're feeling, but they can, but since they know where you're at, they can use that in a very manipulative way because uh, they are uh, disconnected from how you're actually feeling about it. They know how you're feeling, so, but they don't and, care. And that, that is, I think we talked about, we didn't talk about it in this, but you know, studies, studies show that uh, something like 16% of CEOs fall on the spectrum of psychopathy, psychopathy. How, do you, how yes. are you going to pronounce that? And that, you know, and, and they mask it with charisma and charm, but they're ambitious. The people, especially if you're a highly paid one, like you can be the CEO of something tiny, startups might be a bit different. But when you've gotten to where you are, you did that through not necessarily backstabbing. And it doesn't mean that all CEOs are like that, but there's a certain, well, let's make decisions and let's move fast. Despite the people they might, you know, they know right from wrong, but they, you know, some, some of them, not all 16% either, but they don't care. Right. They're just like, ultimately it, it doesn't matter. I'm here for my success. Maybe I'm here for the success of my immediate team and everybody else. Great. If you get there or not. Right. And some are going to be really, good at it. And, you know, there's, there's cognitive empathy. I think that's part of what you were talking about. Yeah. Um, and, and then there's, um, there's emotional empathy where people can right? they really tie into the emotions of others. That's, you know, those, that's when you're crying when a soldier, you know, 
comes home and they have video and he sees his kid for the first time. And you're like, we're even right. That that's, that's emotional empathy. And, and right. one of them probably leads, obviously cognitive is going to lead with thought and emotion with heart, but they, but there's gotta be a mix of those things. Or, right. Or for- you, or you have, you know, the spectrum of psychopaths or you're just dark empathy. Totally emotional yeah, Cause I think the dark I mean, empathy is just the problem. cognitive part. They got the cognitive part without the feeling part. Yeah. I've yeah. never heard it. That's, that's interesting. So let's, let's assume empathy is, um, the lingua franc. Let, well, let's say it's, it's the lingua franc of organizations. Let's say, let's assume that is, that's what the lingua, uh, it should be the lingua franc of organizations. Um, the starting place, meaning that everything arises out of that. How I treat you, what, how I think about uh, the product starts with empathy. How I think about mm-hmm. my, my, uh, my coworkers starts with empathy. How I think about my reports starts with empathy, empathy, which means it frames my conversation with you from the get go. Um, mm-hmm. Are there structural things you think organizations can do to capture this sort of lingua franc? Um, well, when you say lingua franc, I think that's the you're talking about literally language, which is the language of empathy. Um, yeah, people, I'm being metaphorical people, here. The language of it, right? But and there's a difference between the language and the action, yeah. right? So people put as their core core values of their company empathy. You know that that can be up there, but what did that mean? It became it became the new innovation. Right, you right. Know, empathy, like you can say empathy is important, but you don't necessarily absorb the idea that it's not only is it, it's not like IQ where it's inherent to you in theory, right? It doesn't change, but you can grow into it if you care about you and people around you. So putting that into action is that's the, the, the hard part, but admitting and understanding that just saying the word is not doing it right. It's like saying <laughs> something's going to be really hard. And then when it's really hard, you're like, complaining you're like well you said it was like just saying it's hard doesn't mean that it's no less hard you have to go through the hard part and empathy can be really hard for some people not all managers are going to be good at it Um, and if you you're not going to go to someone and say no one thinks they're not good at empathy necessarily i don't know i don't know what goes on in other people's heads but you know like everybody thinks they're good at it so you can sort of rise people up and have them helping each other. You can model empathy pretty well, right? Like people who are good at it are probably more likely to recognize that not everybody's good at it. And they're not just going to yell at someone across the room and say, Hey, you should just be more empathetic. Um, everybody <laughs> Aren't thinks, you more empathetic? Damn you. <laughs> it, gets, it gets into the, 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 the difference in thinking for so many people, people on the autism spectrum, for example, or at least famously not particularly in on the empathetic realm, but that doesn't make them bad people. It just right. means you don't depend on them for a hug in all cases. I'm not saying autistic people don't hug people, um, right. but it, but well, it, you know, it comes, and down, comes down to self-awareness too, and awareness of the people around you in the organization and, and treating them as individuals and understanding their limitations and and your own. I did interview once a president of a college who was definitely self-aware of his own limitations around empathy. And he had had to manage several crises over his career. And he went to his PIO, his public information officer, whenever he started a new job and was like, listen, if something happens like this, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to remember to go talk to people about it. Right. So you need to help me and remind me that I need to do that work. Yep. Yeah. That's you can be introspective and not be particularly good at empathy. And I think that for, you know, I suppose we, we outsource, at least in larger companies, outsource all empathy to HR and go, well, that sounds like HR's job. Exactly. I'm fine. Learning and development. I don't find HR very sympathetic or, or empathetic. No, no. Again, no. Dan, you and I have talked. I think HR is significantly different in the in the software world than it is from in the okay. uh, education. I think well, it's, it's different. If I, I listen to read a lot about HR, you know, when it used to be called personnel department, right, and then, and then it became human resources, which. Sometimes that means humans as resources. Sometimes it means resources for humans. And it depends on the person you're talking to, which one. There's the tactical, I need to get you your health benefits as resources for humans. You need to make sure that they have 
the the human things they need to do their job. And then there's more learning and development and and um, and you know efficiencies that you try to put people in. And you know those are those are a different look at the same thing. But it's not. But empathy should be everywhere, right? It's not like right. the COO's department should go, hey. And, Hey, HR, can you go figure out our culture for us? Like, no, everyone's <laughs> in the culture. How, you know, but they'll do it. They and they'll write about, they'll write five words. Sometimes <laughs> they rhyme. Sometimes they spell your name of your company. And that's terrible. They'll have to take right? some courses too, uh, <laughs> for sure. Um, okay. So I'm going to put on my Chris Matthews hat. I don't think you answered my question, Brad. So are oh. there any structural things that need to happen that are, are, are there structural things in organizations that you think that could be important? put into place HR or not, or is there something, how do we, how do we get to empathy? How do we get more empathetic in a world? I think that it comes, it starts like many things with communication and an understanding that when you say empathy or when you say innovation or you say whatever, that you're defining what you mean by that at the time. Um, But, and, 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 you know, having it known that it is empathy is different for different people, you know, talking like if learning and development is just going to have a bunch of webinars about, you know, I don't even know, remember what webinars they put on, but if you, you don't want to be talking about your feelings constantly at work, but you can certainly put structural resources in place where people are like, Oh, you know, work is such a strange place because you spend so much time with those people that there's no better place to reach humans and give them information than on your, say your Slack channel. Yeah. Right. So yeah. we, we had one that was social pets, right. And you could see that you, you, so that's sort of structurally you're setting up spaces where people can go, Oh, that's so cute. Or we had social yelling, right. There were social channels within, within that. Right. And you, you could have, you can have the same thing with resources. You don't want to get crazy with, um, the differences in people's neuro makeup at work, because that's a really sensitive topic, but you know, it is thoughts, feelings, and emotions are all different, right? And it's okay to have that sort of, whether it's going to be a, Hey, we're all going to talk about thoughts, feelings, and emotions to try to understand what empathy means as a presentation to the company, you know, bring in an outside speaker. Those are things that learning and development can do, but they're so soft that they often don't. Right. And they make it make it interesting and make it part of the common language. You know, you don't want everybody just walking around saying empathy all the time. You want to go, <laughs> you know, but but you can without seeing the word, you can give people recognition for recognizing people. Right. You can go because that's part of empathy is, you know, people want recognition. And I see that that person is, you know, struggling and I'm going to go talk to them about something. Right. But it's, there has to be a lot of learning uh, for managers that needs to be part of manager training to think about that. Right. So if you talk about, um, I have, there's ADHD in my family. If you recognize that someone was struggling with something and it looked like they might, uh, the, you know, that, that could be part of their lives. You wouldn't go, Hey, do you have ADHD? Or, you know, you, I, I've seen things where you support, um, different groups, but some of those groups don't necessarily want to be out, you know, like, oh, you know, that person doesn't like to speak up in meetings. Joda doesn't like to speak up in meetings. Hey, Joda, why don't you talk? And Joda's going like, I don't, uh, I wasn't speaking up because I don't want to. And now I'm on the spot and you've made things worse. Right. So that it's all, it's not, you almost could look at it as sensitivity training, but it's not sensitive training that something bad happened. It's just making things better. Right. Interesting. Well, that so, was a fascinating discussion, Brad. It was. And I'd like to say, so Dan, so Dan and I are trying to come up with this like final takeaways, like wrap it yeah. up. And I'm going to lean on you. What's our wrap up today? M- me yes. or Dan? You, Brad. The other <laughs> no, Dan. it's you. I don't want to be called on. That wasn't very empathetic of you. We didn't. <laughs> That's fair. Um, what is the wrap up? I mean, Ultimately, you said empathy is a secret sauce, right? And you can't just say that and walk away. So it it fit the topics of 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 uh, innovation and product management when you were talking to Dan Torres last time. Um, he was talking about empathy. You have to think about your customers. So it's easy to bring in. So I think that 
empathy is important to building your products. It's important to building your your people. It's important to your organization, and people should hopefully want to learn more about it and think about where they can improve. I think if you look at books on emotional intelligence, for example, they're like ten ways to increase your emotional intelligence through practice. Like be open about what you're thinking. You know, transparency helps in empathy. Like there's you know, those lists of things, but you have to make being it vulnerable. Mm. being vulnerable, being mm. vulnerable. That's yeah. That's something that, uh, that executives should do with each other, but probably don't do with each other very often, especially with an established company where there were founders that set this culture before good, good, batter. And when it's bad, nobody wants to go, let's do work therapy to understand why we're all, you know, jerks to each other <laughs> in, in Uber, right? And you're like, that takes a lot of, of introspection and sort of facilitation to get to that place and go, hey, you know what? These silos exist because of the fear culture that the original founder who's been gone for 10 years set up where you just would fire people that made him mad, right? So no, people don't speak up and they, they, they close in. So all of those things connect back to empathy. So if you had a takeaway for something, it's that it's really important to all aspects. It doesn't just belong in HR and you, you can get better at it, but not everyone is going to be wired to be Brene Brown. <laughs> so be like, try to be like Brene Brown. All right. I got it. Right. So, right. Yeah. And if you want to do that, learn to apologize, learn that apologies are okay. Even in business, you don't have to, give away the argument to say, you know what? I spoke over you and I, and I'm sorry. I, I, you know, you don't have to get, you have good points and, and, you know, I apologize. Cool. See, so, Jody, you can apologize for interrupting me. I'm never going to apologize to you, Dan. This is never going to happen. <laughs> this is a Jody, toxic work wire. environment. <laughs> All HR. <laughs> we need an HR department. All right. <laughs> thank, well, Brad, thank you so much, man. Yeah, uh, thanks, Brad. Pleasure. This was thanks amazing. This was, this was a lot of fun. It's nice to be on the as, as a participant, not just a listener. I appreciate it. Well, we'll definitely have you back if you want to come back. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Yeah, Just yeah. wear an, another flamboyant suit. <laughs> <laughs> I can come back. I can come back thirty times. Then I think. Yes, yes, yeah. that'll be the thing. We'll say what our next episode. What suit will will Brad be wearing next time? <laughs> will so. Brad wear? Yeah, yeah. So, well, hey, thanks again, and for those who are listening, I think we gave up on you clicking likes or subscriptions, but I haven't. Try to click a like, a subscribe. Do all that That's stuff. right. Show some empathy. Show some empathy. Jordan needs it. Makes him feel good. He needs the dopamine hit of a like. It does. does. It does. It helps out. Dan Dan needs it more than I do, but it does. Yes, absolutely. And now for some care. I've given up. I'm cynical. <laughs> <laughs> I have no hope. I have, I have no hopium. <laughs> Stop taking that shit. <laughs>